Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how witchcraft and science intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your host, Angel, and this is our 13th episode. Thank you all for tuning in. For this episode, I'm very excited to share with you an interview with pagan elder and professional wizard, the indelible Oberon Zell Ravenheart. We discuss the influences and intersections of science fiction and neo-paganism, and it was truly an honor to speak with someone who has been at the very beginning of some of the most enduring and foundational movements in paganism. For those of y'all unfamiliar with Oz, there's a brief documentary on his life and work that you can watch called The Wizard of Oz, which I will link in the show notes. Oz has led a fascinating life that has carried him through all sorts of strange twists and turns that make it seem like he himself has lived in a science fiction novel that inspired him to help form the Church of the All Worlds. In our conversation, we discuss his love of science fiction and how it helped to inspire the pagan movement in the 1960s, what is different about neo-paganism from other religions formed around the basis of science fiction, and also talk about some current science fiction media that we find inspiration. Our conversation was like the passing down of the torch for me as a witch of the millennial generation who has read about Oz and other founders of the neo-pagan movement. In our online year in a day class we are hosting over Zoom for the Wild Witches of the Willamette, we read The Drawing Down of the Moon by Margaret Adler for our book discussion, which has led to discussions about witchcraft and a historical and sociological context. I also recently listened to Occult America, White House Seances, Ouija Boards, and Masons and Secret Mystic History of Our Nation by Mitch Horowitz, which has broadened my knowledge and appreciation of the occult history that is uniquely American, and Oz is part of that legacy. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to mention the Science Witch podcast on Patreon for those of y'all out there who wish to support the podcast. At our $5 level is a monthly sticker club featuring Deities of Science stickers. Each month, you will receive a sticker depicting either my own original art or that of a featured guest artist. The stickers can be used to decorate your Book of Shadows or use them on a candle in a devotional practice to that deity. The first sticker in the series available now is my patron goddess, Shashat. And I am working on the next one, which will feature Ninkasi, the Sumerian goddess of beer. At the $10 level, you can join the Science Witch Coven, where you will receive monthly mailings, which can include an item that is either grown or ethically harvested by me, complete with information about that natural item. For this round, I will be sending out to our U.S. coven mates seeds from Mexican poppy, Exhalzia, Mexicana seeds that I collected myself. Included will be a handwritten note from me with suggested ritual or spells to use the poppy seeds with. Coven mates outside the U.S. will receive a pressed and laminated flower bookmark with information contained about that dry plant. This tier I am hoping to devote more time to as people join, and I'm hoping to include more fun mailings and perhaps even some online guided meditation sessions and rituals through Zoom. 
For those of you unable to support the podcast through Patreon, sharing and rating this show through Anchor, Google, or Apple Podcast is very much appreciated. You can send me ideas for episodes, science witchy questions, or thoughts about topics discussed here to questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. Now a brief word from our sponsor, as above, and then on to our interview. As Above LLC is the newest metaphysical boutique in Salem, Oregon. They seek to find magic in everyday ordinary objects and provide items for practitioners of every path. They are excited about showcasing local artisans, hosting classes, providing literature, collaborating with other practitioners, and volunteering in their community. As Above is passionate about being an ally and empowering women, men, all LGBTIQA, non-binary, all ethnicities, nationalities, people with disabilities, all ages, maidens, mothers, crones, sages, and all spiritual paths. They are an all-inclusive, all-people group. Currently, As Above is hosting Facebook live shows, Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, with a focus on spiritual tools, and Witch Wine Wednesday, where they showcase local talent at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Check them out on various social media accounts. Links in the show notes. Special thanks to our sponsors, as above. Now, on to my interview. Oberon Zell Ravenheart is a renowned wizard and elder in the global magical community. In 1967, he was first to claim the identity of pagan, incorporating the first pagan church of all worlds in 1968. Publishing Green Egg magazine over more than 50 years, he was instrumental in the coalescence of the modern pagan movement. In 1970, he published the earliest version of the Gaia Thesis. In the 1980s, Oberon and his wife, Morning Glory, resurrected authentic living unicorns. In 1990, they coined the term polyamory, thus launching another movement. Oberon creates altar figurines and jewelry and is the author of Grimoire for the Apprentice Wizard and other books. His latest book, soon to be published, is That Undiscovered Country, Oberon is also founder and headmaster of the online Gray School of Wizardry. Now settled in Washington for the previous two years, Oberon was on a walkabout, traveling through the Western Hemisphere, talking about wizardry, quantum magic, and the awakening 2020 vision and half a century of modern paganism. I was very happy to speak with Oz via Zoom from his residence at the Longhouse in Washington. All right. So with me today is Oberon Zell Ravenheart, who I get to know as Oz, because we have been friends, I guess, now for about a year. You're definitely a man of a very interesting connection to the topics that we're going to be talking about today, which is neo-paganism and science fiction. Okay, how about it? So, Oz, let's start off... Let's let's start off with giving our listeners a little bit of a background, those of them that aren't familiar with you and your work, is sort of an idea of how your interest in science fiction began and how it has led into your identity as a pagan. Well, I think that's a great story. Um, 
it really began uh, with the very first reading when I was a kid, when I was oh, about two or so and learning how to read. Mm-hmm. The very first um, stuff I was reading was children's versions of the Greek myths. There was a, um, a book set that my folks got called uh, Childcraft Books, and one of them was called Myths and Legends of All Peoples or All Nations, something like that. And um, the very first story I remember very clearly was um, the story of Pluto and Proserpina. The names were all Latin because the stories were derived from um, Ovid's Metamorphosis rather than directly from the Greek, which always struck me as odd because I, I, I know all these deities by the Greek names. But in any case, um, I was hooked, and I read all the other myths and legends and stories, and I was just fascinated by by the mythic um, realm. Uh, long before I was old enough to go to Sunday school and learn Christianity, you know, I was immersed in the myths and legends of of Greece and Egypt and Scandinavia and Celtic lands and India and everywhere, everywhere in the world, and. Um, that gave me an introduction not only to God's multiplicities, so that when I eventually encountered Christianity in Sunday school and studied the um, the mythology of the of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, I did not. It never occurred to me that that was the one true, right, and only way. That it was just simply the stories of another people, mm-hmm. just like the Greeks and the Egyptians and everybody else. And since I was neither Greek, Egyptian, nor Jewish. Um, None of them were really the stories of my people anyway, so it, it didn't really land in that way. Mm-hmm. But that led into fairy tales, and fairy tales led into fantasy, and eventually fantasy led into science fiction. And when I was going to grade school, there was a program that came out that you could buy um, science fiction books. It was a special thing, I think, put out by the Science Fiction Book Club. Mm-hmm. And for like 10 cents, you could get paperback uh, science fiction books, anything you wanted, 10 cents a piece. And they were printed on paper that was so cheap and flimsy that all these years later, I think if I opened the books, they would crumble like the books in the library of the time machine. But uh, nonetheless, um, that got me hooked. Well, right about that time, well, not, not exactly, in the early 50s, uh, right, well, the last 40s, early 50s, uh, Robert Heinlein started publishing a series of juveniles, of which there was a dozen altogether, mm-hmm. and they were sort of the Harry Potter books of my generation because they were for kids, they were for teenagers, and each one, as I recall, the protagonist, which wasn't the same person, but these were different stories, would be about a year older. So I was exactly that age at that mm-hmm. time. I was the age of the characters in the stories, just like kids who start with Harry Potter when they're 11. Mm-hmm. So I was right along with it, and um, of course I had um, I had made very good friends with a local librarian. I've always had a fascination for, you know, the uh, the whole archetype of the librarian, Mary and the librarian, you know, all that kind of stuff. Intelligent women with uh, glasses and all that stuff. Just that was kind of my heart job there. <laughs> and uh, uh, so she would always save the next one for me. The next wow. issue, when a new volume would come out, it would be sitting on the shelf with my name on it, and I would be the first one to get to read it. So what were some that, of those first books? Pardon? What were some of the first books with, uh, that you read oh, from you see, uh, I think the first one was uh, Space Cadet, mm-hmm. which also, interestingly enough, was um, made into a very popular TV series called Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, 
that was enormously popular back in the 50s. It was comparable to uh, Star Trek in its day. And it was it was Highland Strike. In fact, one of the very first science fiction movies, the um, Destination Moon, is based on Heinlein's um, uh, novel, uh, The Man Who Sold the Moon. So there was there was a whole series of these. And um, let's see, so let's see, some of them, Starman Jones, The Star Beast, um, uh, Tunnel in the Sky. Uh, well, there was there was a lot of them. I could I could think of the names if I sat down and thought about mm-hmm. it, but they were all very... But what was the appeal for these for you? Well, these were all stories about what does it mean to be fully human. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, this is what science fiction offers. Science fiction is the only form of literature that can really address that question. What does it mean to be fully human? Because you have to say, well, in comparison to what? And all science fiction can offer you some comparisons. So all of these stories were like that. All of Heinlein's stuff was, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And many others, most science fiction, really, address that question. What does it mean to be human? And, and what is a, a really solid human human about? You know, What does it mean to be a mensch, as it were? You know, a real, mm-hmm. real solid person. And, and these were very good. They were, they were wonderful for kids. So Heinlein and other science fiction writers, you know, Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Theodore mm-hmm. Swinton, these were my mentors growing yeah. up. These were the these were the um, the wizards to my young hero in the stories, you know. And they were, um, and then eventually, of course, uh, I, we started having science fiction conventions, and I attended those, and I got to meet these people and hang out with them. But the values implicit in science fiction are utopian and visionary. Well, of course, there's the dystopian stuff. Back at that same time, um, a lot of the fiction that was coming out was about. Um, doom and destruction. The world was going to be destroyed in a nuclear holocaust and all that kind of stuff. So we had a lot of that going on. Most of the movies and TV shows of that era were all very negative. They were very um, scary. The world's going to be blown up in a nuclear holocaust and we're going to be slugging it out with the hideous mutants and the radioactive ruins like in Strange Brew. And um, interestingly enough about that, in 1960, a George Powell made a superb movie of Time Machine, mm-hmm. you know, the um, H.G. Wells' uh, story of the Time Machine, which was written in 1865, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when the story was written, there was no idea what the 20th century was going to look like. But having the movie come out in 1960, George Powell had to have the time traveler make a stop in contemporary times. So he did. And in the story, in the movie, gets out of the time machine just as the nuclear war is taking off in the beginning and things are starting to blow up. Well, the date on the chronometer on the dashboard was August of 1966, only six years after the date of the movie, which was remarkable because the implication was that at that time, that seemed like a reasonable projection. And it, totally, everybody thought so. Everybody thought, oh yeah, well, six years from now, the world will be destroyed. People were building fallout shelters out of plywood and cinder blocks in their backyard and all that kind of stuff. So there was that negative thing. I had uh, I had quite a library after a while. Yeah. Uh, the entire wall of my house was nothing but paperback books. And I organized them as a school project and assignment in different categories. And one of these categories was dystopian. Mm. There was a lot of those. Yeah. But those weren't the inspiration. The inspiration was what kind of a future 
can we envision and build? What if we really get it together, you know, and um, and don't destroy ourselves? What what could that look like? So there's a lot of visionary ideas, or what you know, uh, life could be like in another world, perhaps. But it was about the future at a time when there really wasn't much of a vision of a future in that post um, nuclear era of um, you know from 1945 and the end of the war with the nuclear bombs in, in Japan, mm-hmm. um, you know, through the 50s and uh, right up to that point, it was like, wow, not going to be a future. Not going to be one. Mm-hmm. So this gave us that. Well, when the date of the movie kind of came around, of um, I think it was August 17th of 1966, obviously we did not have a nuclear holocaust. And a month later, something else happened entirely. A new visionary future was presented that was not about blowing ourselves to smithereens and all of that. And of course, that was the premiere of Star Trek on September eighth yeah. of that year. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, we were we were shown a positive vision in which we actually do get it together. We don't blow ourselves off the face of the earth. And and here is the bridge of a starship with an international interracial crew of people who, in the time of the sixties. Uh, we're not getting along together very well, really, obviously. Right, you know? right. African and American and Russian and Japanese. I mean, these were like mm-hmm. hostile forces. But here they are all being officers on the bridge of a starship. Wow. And, of course, um, all of the stories were, were very thinly veiled analogs of the social issues and problems of the day mm-hmm. presented in almost like Aesop's fables, you know. Yeah. Anything? Well, take a look at this. Just step back just a little bit and pretend that these are aliens. What if we want, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was huge. Well, so that's um, that's right there. But it's the biggest thing for me that happened during that whole era was that in 1961, the whole series of juveniles that Heinlein had been writing for 12 years reached its conclusion because the heroes had been getting older and older. And finally, the first one came out that was for adults. And that, of course, was Stranger in a Strange Land, which came out as the Science Fiction Book Club Selection of the Month in October of 61. And wow, that was a blockbuster. That just knocked me off my feet and everything else, everyone else too, because it, it took a whole different approach. Nobody had ever did be, done before, really. It was you take a, a human who is born and raised on another planet with no concept of, of humanity by, raised by wise ancient aliens, sort of like we take a chimpanzee out of the jungle and raise them up in Los Angeles or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, which we have done. Yeah. <laughs> and teach them sign language and how mm-hmm. to speak and break things and wear clothes and, you know, all that stuff. Imagine if we then sit them back to the jungle, send this, you know, mm-hmm. back to the jungle where we teach some of the other apes how to speak in high sign language and how to make tools, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, that's the plot. And then coming back to Earth, the world that he's never known and a culture he's never known, raised in a totally different, vastly superior culture, mm-hmm. our hero looks at everything from that um, alien anthropologist perspective. Mm-hmm. And of course, the way the story is structured is fascinating because it's seen through the eyes of the people who gather around this individual as companions and, mm-hmm. and friends and associates. And the reader becomes one of those. You, you're not just outside the story. You actually become a part of the story along with all the other characters, which is really interesting. So you cannot avoid looking at these same institutions we take for granted 
from that outside perspective and say, well, you know, um, you know, when you look at it that way, uh, maybe that could be improved upon a bit. Right. Yeah. Of I, course. Well, well I, I had actually, um, when I uh, found out you were coming, I had listened to Stranger in a Strange Land because um, that was one of the books I know from history of, you know, reading about you and uh, drawing down the moon by Margaret Adler. And then I think you also mentioned and the ethical slut which talks about the beginning of polyamory. So I sort of had known about the Church of the All Worlds and how it had been formed around this book. And so I brought some of my more millennial <laughs> guises to the book, and I was more critical of it. But the thing that sort of my older witchy best friend, Moon Dancer, who, of course, is the same age as you, and she had read this book when it first came out, is she was trying to impress upon me how revolutionary this book was in that it espoused these ideas to love and also just thou art God. That phrase was just such a opening the floodgates into understanding your personal divinity. And from that phrase, Americans specifically were given this doorway into this whole new concept of what connection to the divinity was and that was the basis of this this neo-pagan movement that you you were fundamental in helping start with the church of all worlds well exactly and it wasn't like we uh, tried to um replicate the the model in the book because there were built-in factors that were not replicable for example infinite right. wealth was part of it and Martian, right. you know it was part of it in the language and all the rest of that stuff so that wasn't really the issue. The thing is, at the end of the book, the story is kind of completed. Um, you know, the, the the temple is raised, you know, raided by the you know villagers with the torches and pitchforks, and the hero is martyred, and the people who had been his associates are kind of left to carry on. And those of us who read this book when it first came out, we kind of looked at each other and we said, "Well, I guess we got to carry on," you know. So the very first thing that we did. Um, after our few of us read the book, was to share water, which is a very important part of the book. A little ceremony there of water sharing and creating a water brotherhood. And the phrase, of course, uh, that accompanies that, may you never thirst, thou art God. And that concept, there were a lot of concepts in the book. It wasn't that there was a model exactly, although Heinlein did give enough information on how to go about starting a church. He says that. He said that religion is a null area in the law, and he gave a little prescription. If you want to start a new church, here's what you have to do. Yeah. So, well, I did it. You know, I went mm -hmm. and, and, um, and took divinity at a little uh, Bible school, uh, mail-order Bible school, and got a, a, a you know, ordination. And, and then we filed for incorporation and all that stuff. Well, the first thing that we did, we'd, we'd kind of been a water brotherhood growing in college. Uh, mm -hmm. We would meet people that we thought were really cool. And we would give them the book. Say, hey, you think you might like to read this? And then they'd read the book and they'd come back and go, wow. And they'd say, you like that? Yeah, that's really cool. Well, um, share water. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the time we graduated in 65, there was about 100 of us, Water Brotherhood. And we called ourselves ATL, A -T -L, mm -hmm. which um, was an Aztec word meaning for water. And it had this esoteric meaning of the 
ancient lost homeland of our ancestors that we thought was like Atlantis and pretty cool, and we're into that kind of nerdy stuff. And um, so we graduated, and then we went off to our respective different graduate schools and life beyond, and we started corresponding with what in those days was would have been called an apazine. Uh, it was a popular thing in the science fiction community that I was associated with, where a single person would kind of be the compiler, and everybody would write letters and send them in, and then the person would make copies of all these and then send them out to everybody. So it was kind of an interesting little newsletter program. So we corresponded that way, and the discussion that we had was, well, should we continue doing this kind of a little secret underground water brotherhood, or should we go public with this? And we debated this at some length, and then eventually we decided, well, we'll have to do both. And so we did. And my first water brother, Lance, Lance Christie, was kind of appointed to head up what became the Atlan Foundation, and eventually incorporated as the Association for the Tree of Life, which is still active, and you can Google it and look it up, and they're foremost in the environmental movement and stuff, and very behind the scenes in a lot of very significant things. Like Lance was one of the co-founders of Earth First, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, was responsible personally when he was working with the health department in New Mexico for the first legal medical use of marijuana for glaucoma and all kinds of stuff. The Allen folks have done really good work over the years. And I was elected to go out and um, and take the Church of All Worlds out to the out to the world. So the first thing that I did was have a flea market at a local coffee house, Beat Me Coffee, and um and and we sold a bunch of junk out of the garage to uh, raise enough money to to acquire a little copy machine. So that we could create a little newsletter, and it was successful. But but since it was a thing at that time that if you were a church, you could get free advertising in the paper, announcements of your programs and stuff. So I took advantage of that. So it said Church of All Worlds over everything. It was the first time we went public with that. And so the person who was running the coffee house said, "Hey, people are asking about this Church of All Worlds. Will you come to the coffee house this week and talk about it?" Tell us what it's all about. So I said, and I went and I talked about ideas from Stranger and Strange Land and other stuff we've been thinking about because um, it was a lot. I mean, we didn't get all the stuff from Stranger and Strange Land. This was also the time of the beginning of transpersonal psychology and, uh, you know, the edges of the psychedelic movement were, were taking off mm -hmm. and all kinds of exciting stuff was happening at that time. There's, there is, uh, just have a slight digression, a 60 year cultural renaissance cycle occurred like clockwork yeah. ever since the Italian Renaissance in the 1480s, and the 60s were one of those, just as the 20s are this the current one. And all kinds of movements emerged at these times. It's a mm. time of movements. So we had the sexual freedom movement, the free speech movement, the um, women's liberation movement, the civil rights movement, the um, uh, environmental movement, lots and lots of movements. And of course, the beginning of the pagan movement, which I seem to have been responsible for because when I went to give a talk, somebody raised a question. He said, "Well, this Church of All Worlds you got here, what what kind of a church is this? Are you of some Christian sect, or are you one of these Eastern religions?" I mean, new funny religions were popping out of the woodwork back in those days. Mm -hmm. You had the Krishna people and the Moonies and Dianetics, you know, and just all kinds of them. They were just coming off from everywhere. Most of them were like Eastern Guru kind of a stuff. Right. So they asked, it was a reasonable question, which I hadn't really thought about. Church of all worlds, you know, what, where does that fit? 
can do anything. You can write in science fiction, you can do anything. So I said, well, thinking back to my original uh, inspiration in folklore and in mythology and all this stuff, I said, well, I guess you could say we're pagans. <laughs> that, that seemed to be the only logical thing to say. We are the people who derive our from mythology, mythology of ancient times, but also mythology of the future that is still being created. And uh, that caught on. Obviously. Caught on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a huge way, as you see, the, I feel the internet connecting all of us in the ways that it has, has been a catalyst to just this progression of the pagan movement and I happen to be from the more millennial generation now and it's just such an honor to be able to speak to the older generation because as we become this sort of solidified culture these are going to be the ways that you know we are able to connect the generations as we continue co-creating what the neo-pagan movement is becoming. So what in science fiction do you think speaks to the values of what you want to see happen in the neo-pagan movement? Well, there is a lot, actually. But I think that um, we actually did an analysis of this when we first went public with Church of All Worlds. It didn't take very long before we realized that we were starting something that could become really big. We were starting a new religion, which was huge. You know, That doesn't happen very often. And so... We kind of we were students of history and anthropology and psychology and all that stuff, and we didn't want to see us go the same way that mistakes have been made, as it were, before. I mean, you know, two thousand years ago, a a nice gentle rabbi in Jerusalem sort of tried to start a religious movement, telling people to be nicer to each other, maybe. And a thousand years later, people were waging holy wars and and burning people at the stake in his name. <laughs> and it was like, wow, where did what went wrong there? Mm-hmm. Obviously, something went profoundly wrong. So we we tried to analyze that. We said, well, what what were the fundamental flaws in the very beginning that something is with as much apparent benevolence and positivity as the teachings of Jesus could have become the Spanish Inquisition? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he didn't expect that. <laughs> and. Um, so we came up with a bunch of them. The first and most important one being the concept of the one true right and only way. If monotheism itself, mono, anything, there's a whole monotheism that Isaac Bonowitz articulated, say, how did it go? Monotheism and monarchy and um, monoculture and monogamy and monotony. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we said, well, that's one of the things we really got to address. It's not a mono thing. We got to come up with a poly thing. And since paganism is rooted in polytheism, many different gods with many different peoples, and that was my introduction to theology long before I was introduced to monotheism. And that never really took, but the poly did. And of course, uh, in Stranger in a Strange Land, you have the concept of thou art God, the imminent divinity, that we are all um, divine beings. Mm. And the out of out of that, the, the larger vision of that is that divinity is not an entity, not a single individual. It's a quality. It's a, itself. It permeates the universe, like the Force in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. See, all these things do interconnect that way. And, and just like we have water is everywhere. Water is universal. But when it's contained in a cup, 
Well, it takes the shape of the cup, and there it is. But water is not actually the cup. You know, the water itself is separate. And so divinity is like that. So we had that. Stranger to Strange Land who introduced us to the concept of priestesses. And that only occurs in pagan religions. We're the only ones who have priestesses. No other religions do. So that was big. And that implied, of course, the um, thermal empowerment of women, bringing women back into it, and feminine divinity, the goddess, the idea of the goddess. These were all things that simply did not exist in the monotheistic religions that we were confined to. No priestesses, no goddesses, no plurality. So all of this stuff is embedded in science fiction by its very nature with the every new story involves different cultures, different people, with their own traditions and religions and histories. So you have to develop a concept of polydiversity is is embedded in science fiction and of course carried over into paganism. And I think that's one of its best features, one of its saving graces. We mm-hmm. simply do not acknowledge any one true right and only way. If anybody tried to come up and proclaim that they had the one true right and only way, they would be laughed out of the circle. Because, you know, come on, you know, how can you say that? And that, I think, has been tremendous. It's allowed us to expand our our concept of who's welcome to include everybody who wants to be here. And, and paganism has always, from the very beginning, eschewed proselytizing or proselytution, as we mm-hmm. like to call it. We simply do not go knocking on people's doors and ask if they've heard the word of the lady and would like to learn about our watchtowers or something. You know, Just don't do that. <laughs> People have to come to us, and they do. They find a way, and by whatever clues we do, but we're not telling them. We're not out there, you know, making an issue of it. They can they can come and find us, and sometimes it's difficult. Well, it used to be more difficult. Now, it's <laughs> it's pretty easy because yeah. we're everywhere, you know, and I think that's really neat. But one of the most wonderful things, I think, as, as an elder, I'm actually, I guess, I would have to be the elder because I was the first person to claim this identity, and I'm still alive. I'm the only mm. oldest, the only one still standing from those early days. Yeah. So that puts me in an interesting position. I'm sort of like the senior as Hyman addresses <laughs> Lazarus Long in his stories. So, um, so oh, let's see, what else did we have? We had, of course, in Stranger and Strange Land, we had introduction to polyamory. Although right. It took a long time before we came up with a word for that, but that was morning glory, and you know, so wow, yeah, yeah. So that was big. So there we are, responsible as one family for two entire movements, and um, and ritual nudity, which is very popular in the pagan community. Uh, we like to be naked and dance naked around the fire and go skinny dipping and hang out in hot tubs and stuff, and we're really comfortable about all that. And the idea of uh, nature and divinity mm-hmm. being imminent. I mean, the very last act that uh, Michael uh, has uh, before he dies is to look at a grasshopper and say, Thou art God. You know, the implication of the divinity is not just with us, you know, hairless apes. You know, it extends to all life everywhere. So there's a, there was a lot of that stuff, and, it's, and I think it's very profound. But it was also reflected in other places, the writings of Theodore Sturgeon, who was a good friend of Heinlein's and a good friend of uh, Morning Glory and my personally. His stories were full of the same kind of visionary ideas, and mostly his dealt with the relationships between the sexes. What is, how can we really go somewhere with that and develop new ways of, of relating to each other as men and women? 
And that was very profound. And men and women and everything in between in his stories, as this turned out to be in the reality. And so that kind of opened up that spectrum, too, to um, sexual and gender diversity. That was interesting in science fiction. Uh, Ursula the Games, Left Hand of Darkness, addressed that um, uh, sexual ambiguity and such like that. By creating alien races that do not have gender the same assignment that we do, allows a possibility of exploring uh, different considerations and options so we can see each other in different ways. There was just so much. It's hard to even separate it out. And it continues in 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 popular fiction today and in movies and TV series. Obviously, something like Avatar right. is a totally Gaia movie with a punk completely. And I, and I made up a little off the top of my head little list for you of yeah, I did. I did. Um, actually, I wanted to kind of touch on a couple of them that we could talk about a lot of them for sure. American Gods is definitely a show that I found. I read that book, of course, by Neil Gaiman uh, yeah. quite a few years ago. And the book is very good, but it's short. And mm. the show gets to actually like go much more into depth about all of these various different gods and goddesses that are, of course, all real gods and goddesses. And one of my favorite characters is Belquist. Yeah, she's, Belquist is really fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I really love her. I have, I have found that, I'm not quite sure what's accounted for this, but, but right now I'm encountering a significant number of amazing, powerful black women, yes. not only in, in TV shows and fiction and movies, but in my real life these days. So it's like, wow, there's there's a thing going on here too, you know? Yeah, there's there's just been a lot of synchronicity for me in that particular show. And it's just this sort of idea that gods survive on worship. And yes. that when that worship leaves them and no one is there to speak their name, they disappear. They essentially, there's the death of a god. And I have found that to be so powerful in terms of my concepts of deity because I do have connections with deities that I feel are outside of myself and that they've kind of picked me as their scion. Specifically, Shashat, who is the Egyptian goddess of writing and libraries and record keeping, she has connected with me in a really powerful and meaningful way. It was actually during the total solar eclipse in 2017 and it just opened the gateway to my connection with her and she wants to be known more she wants to have more people worship her and know of her wisdom as she was the record keeper she was Toth's consort she's ready to come back into the world and not be occluded by all the patriarchy which had gone in to bring egypt ancient egypt to the west and she's been someone that's been occluded in terms of a lot of the occult fascination with Egyptology. So that's something I felt really strongly. And American Gods has kind of helped make my logical, modern human mind be able to conceptualize my relationship with this ancient goddess that I'm having these interactions with. Well, yeah, I think that's such an excellent example there. And, of course, the TV series is also being produced by Neil Gaiman himself. Who's, right. Who has made quite a, a showing of himself in, in movies and TV and stuff as well. I mean, he did Beowulf and 
Neuromask and things like that. The, the guy is amazing. Of course, we all know him from the, the comic series, of course, right. uh, Sandman and uh, Books of Magic and stuff. Of course, Books of Magic was basically uh, Harry Potter was just a ripoff of Books of Magic. Mm -hmm. The influence goes both ways in all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think it all goes back to what I said at the very beginning, is that it's all myth. It's all rooted in mythology. It's all rooted in stories. And we are beings of story. Yeah. You know, uh, you've touched on the idea of the gods uh, existing by, by their worship. This is something that Terry Pratchett uh, emphasizes quite a lot in his writings, especially the book Small Gods, which is all mm -hmm. about that. There's a, there's a phrase that is a basic pagan thing that says, what is remembered lives. Mm -hmm. And what is forgotten, well, disappears. And that was also a theme in the animated movie um, Coco, where right. that came up a lot, you may recall. Mm -hmm. It's like they say a, a person truly has two deaths, the day that they actually die and the day that their name is forgotten. Yes, absolutely. That is a very true statement. It's, I'm, uh, <laughs> that's an epigram in my uh, current book um, that I've just finished writing and I'm sending off to the publisher as soon as I go. Uh, one last uh, check over to make sure I didn't screw up anything on the, on the PDF because I I did the whole thing. I did it all laid out and graphics and the whole bit goes off to the publisher. And um, yeah, that's one of the epigrams in there. I think that's very important. Called That Undiscovered Country, A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife. So. Oh, this is your new book that's just now will be coming out in the, in the future? Yep, very soon. Uh, the publisher is Black Moon Publishing, and they are very eager to get this out because they feel that it's very timely. And it's really needed right now with people dying all over the place. Right. That would be a very timely thing. I helped out with the Pagan Pride in Portland, which was, of course, all online this past year. And one of right. the people speaking was talking about pagan funeral rites and why it's important as a culture if we really, truly want to be taken seriously as a religious movement that we need to start thinking about things like death. And incorporating these funeral rites into our actual practice, as opposed to not having any sort of plan when we die, not having any kind of way for the people left behind to honor the wishes. Yeah, that, I think that'll be very relevant and timely. Um, well, the book was uh, inspired uh, initially by Morning Glory's death, of course. Mm -hmm. Reading of that kind of brought this to the forefront of my attention. Now, I personally have no conviction about dying myself. I know that I'm immortal. I'm going to live forever. We all, we all know that. But there's nothing like, um, you know, death is nature's way of telling you to slow down, I think, sometimes. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of death, there's another thing on your list that I, I kind of wanted to touch on, which is altered carbon. And that oh, is a yeah. really interesting show in that really? you don't yeah. die. <laughs> Right, you but just get downloaded somewhere else and then reloaded up into a new avatar. Spun up, as yeah. they say. I found that that uh, story to be just uncannily real. Mm. It just seemed like there's an inevitability in the direction that we are going that this will be ahead of us. It's just like, you know, you can see inevitability of the progression of AI to where we right. really are going to have these, you know, sentient androids that, although why anybody would make Androids that are indistinguishable from humans. I cannot imagine that never turns out well. Never in the story. turns out well. 
on the topic of things that seem very eventual to happen, I also want to talk about The Expanse because that one I watch and I get fresh chills about The Expanse because The Expanse is written by the the writer Corey, James Corey. He has a quite an interesting engineering background. So he knows about how objects actually move through space and that's why that show in particular is very meticulous about whenever someone bleeds in space, you see the, the the blood, the way it pools in zero gravity or cries or any kind of liquid. And then, of course, there's no fires in space. There's nothing that would suggest that it isn't in space. And the fact that there are people like the uh, belters that cannot live on planets. Like what is going to happen to humanity when we are having generations that are born outside of a planetary structure? That's right. And uh, as well as on other planets too, I think we will see um, an evolutionary diversification of humanity that we've simply never experienced. Humanity has been remarkably homogeneous for the past, you know, 300,000 years. The, there's very little actual physical difference between what we call modern humans and Neanderthals, really. You could, you know, dress them up and put them out on the street and you probably wouldn't notice. But I think that going out into space and other worlds, we're going to be, and of course, people will be engaged in genetic engineering also right. to modify humans to live in other environments. If we end up in an aquatic environment, we may get modified to have gills or something. Aquaman or something, and um, but yeah, uh, being born and raised uh, in outer space, you will not be able to deal with planetary gravity. That was also addressed in Strange in a Strange Land when Valentine Michael Smith came to Earth, having grown up twenty five years on Mars, he couldn't cope with the gravity, and it was a big deal about that. Sort of like the reverse of uh, John Carter of Mars, you know. Mm-hmm. Which, which sort of inspired Superman, the idea that if you were born and raised on a super heavy planet, then when you came here, you could leap tall buildings in a single bound and all that stuff. You know, had enormous strength. And these are factors. These are factors. We're going to see a new phase of evolution of humanity out there that um, is, well, there's just no telling where it's going to go. But I was fascinated particularly... Those are two of the best series for sure. Altered Carbon and The Expanse. They're, they're just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. They're very, very diverse really. as well. I, that is something also I really, especially The Expanse. The Expanse is just like people from all walks of life are on that show, and it, it's just really incredible. And the new Star Trek as well with uh, yeah. Star Trek I Discovery. Was- I wasn't impressed with the first season of Discovery. I was going, what did they do to the Klingons? Come on. You know, yeah. I mean, that just didn't make any sense at all. They turned into some kind of reptiles or something. But as it got on into season after season, it got like better and better. But last season, it was like, wow. Wow. So I'm very impressed by that, too. What I see fascinating to me is that science fiction now, that we're seeing in movies and TV series especially, has a consciousness and an intelligence that is like, way beyond anything that goes back to the old days of Invaders from Mars kind of stories. You know, mm-hmm. We're just in a completely new realm of this, of considering the possibilities. And science fiction is really a literature of the possible and, and perhaps the probable. 
but it is a mythology. It is a mythology of the future. And it's just as mythic and just as epic as our mythology of the past. And if and these are the stories which infuses. I have no doubt that that eventually we're going to be having our colonies on Mars. And I have no doubt that the first child born on Mars will be either named Michael or Michelle. And they will take land along with them, along with uh, you know the Martian Chronicles and Red Planet and many other stories about Mars, and and of course all the Edgar Rice Burroughs, Barsoom stories, and these will be the popular fiction. The Stranger in Strange Land will have, I think, a particularly important part to play in that whole uh, that whole realm, because our stories not only shape us, but we shape the stories, and it's a feedback loop. And so that was kind of the thing. It's, with Church of All Worlds, it's, it's, it's unique. Among all the pagan organizations, um, most of them are reconstructionists of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to develop a contemporary version of ancient Egyptian or Greek or, or Norse or Celtic uh, religion and rites and stuff. Modified, of course. I think the idea is sort of like, well, if those had not been exterminated by the, you know, by Christianity and the Crusaders and all this stuff that had continued to evolve over the years, what might they look like today? And I and I think that that's just great and really neat. There's a lot of diversity, but Stranger in a Strange Land wasn't about that, and the Church of All Worlds wasn't about that either. We're bigger than that. We're looking at something that would work anywhere. I can, the Church of All Worlds would work perfectly well as a religion of future Martian colonists because it's about the seasons and the changing of the cycle and the living planet and all of that stuff. And um, that's universal. Everywhere we go, we will find those common features, those common grounds. And paganism is not about, it's not about one people. It's not about one story. It's the celebrations, the festivals are not about the birth or death of some prophet or, or messiah or saints or martyrs or anything like that. They're about the eternal changing of the seasons and they're universal. Throughout the world, people celebrate the equinoxes and the solstices in every culture. And everybody knows this stuff. And everybody everywhere in the world knows about you know, Mother Earth. I mean, she is a universal archetype. You know? And the most and only truly universal archetype is Mother Earth. Everybody knows her. So there are, there are these very profound things. And when we talk about drawing from science fiction, you can't really separate mythology from science fiction. It's, mm-hmm. all, it's all a part of a continuum. And it's a rich one. It's infinitely rich because it's continually being created. And personally, I'm as, as an elder and, and a founder of all this back in the day when you could count the number of pagans in the world on the fingers of one foot to see subsequent generations like like the millennials you know picking it up and carrying it forward and making it yours and running with it that is wonderful you know i, I feel like a proud grandpa invited thanksgiving dinner to coo over the grandchildren you know, and stuff it's just, this is great i think that's the main reason they keep inviting me back to festivals so i can you know you sit there see and the go, legacy yeah. that you're yeah. It is. But, but I, I love the idea of being able to say, you kids are doing great. Carry on. You know? <laughs> and we've done a number of passing the torch ceremonies. And I really think that is the primary task. But this is why I've been writing books lately and starting right. a school and stuff like that is to, is to uh, pass the torch to the next generation. 
doesn't do any good to spend your life learning stuff if you never pass it on and you just die with it. But what's the right. point? Let's switch gears and uh, go to a topic that I wanted to discuss with you. And this is kind of influenced by recently watching this documentary on HBO about the Heaven's Gate. And also, there, there's another good, I can also link these in the show notes, about Scientology. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts about how we can avert science fiction-based spiritual movements from becoming problematic or cult-like. Well, you know, um, my experience is that paganism just does not attract cultists. Or if people have that sort of aspiration, they don't last long, you know, because all the all the fundamental premises of, of being in a cult, where you've got to, you know, follow the dictates of some cult leader and do whatever they say, and 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 subject yourself to that kind of control, we're just too honorary for that sort of stuff. You know, we just don't go for it. You know, in fact, was one of the things when we were starting the Church of All Worlds and getting it going is we really were looking around and we did not want to be a cult, and I did not want to be a cult leader. I wouldn't want to join one, and I wouldn't want to lead one. So. Um, we spent a lot of effort in trying to make sure we would not be a cult and that that wouldn't be possible. And there may turn up to be people occasionally who would like to be running a cult, but there they are, surrounded by all kinds of other people who um, won't go for it, you know. Uh, and, the, and the festival movement is a major factor of that. You go to a big festival and people are just mixing it up all over the place. You just don't get to be just your own little thing and your own little rules and dictates and stuff like that cult requires, because there's just too much diversity. There's too many other options. And of course, pagan festivals, being the lusty pagan folk that we are, people tend to hook up with people from all kinds of different traditions and, and have wonderful uh, assignations, you know, and um, you know, and then they, they, you just don't get that kind of a cult thing, which requires isolation of people from everybody else. Right, and, and of course, Heaven's Gate was famously celibate. All of their members were celibate, which I don't see celibate. ever happening in the pagan really? community. Really? Yeah, that, that wouldn't go over very well in the pagan community, I'm afraid. We're the people who put the R back and celebrate. <laughs> well, there, there is the, the, the sort of famous legend that Heinland and Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard, had made that famous bet yes. where... Um, Heinlein said that you want to get rich, start a religion. And uh, L. Ron, of course, was sort of a notorious grifter, and he had taken a lot of Crowley's writings and sort of changed them into what we now know as the Church of Scientology and all of its problematic aspects that there have been several really good documentaries about. And but, but these movements, of course, were also started by science fiction and science fiction writers, but you can see that they're obviously the the emphasis that pagans put on being having more diversity and opening yourself up to experiences and going forth and seeking knowledge, that is one of the ways that this movement is differed from other particular groups that have used science fiction as their liturgical text. Yes, I, I think that's a very good example, of course. Yeah, we all know about that. that um, they, I was very disappointed that the really promising series Strange Angel, which was leading up to that backstory, 
was canceled after. I know. I totally. Just when Hubbard shows up, then it's the last episode, then they cancel the series. Because there's just so much more after that, of course, because Elrond ends up stealing all of Carson's money and taking off with his new wife, which was the sister of his first wife. I suspect that the Scientologists had something to do with the cancellation of that series. I would not doubt that. I would not doubt that, because it definitely puts into perspective what kind of person their prophet was and, and puts him in that human context that I think they don't want people to know. So No, they don't, which is why they're not pagan, really. Mm-hmm. Nor, nor they could be. That's a good example, I think. Here's a, here's a classic example of two potential religions uh, by two uh, science fiction authors, one actually really good science fiction author, another really crappy one, but... Uh, mm-hmm. We'll have to talk more about that. Um, <laughs> they, they started new religions that went in totally different directions. For example, Heinlein never really was engaged in in religion. He just kept writing books and stuff. Although we were in friendly correspondence, we corresponded for years, and um, and he subscribed to Green Egg, and we had great conversations. But he wasn't interested in being a religious leader. He was interested in being a writer of ideas. And as he said in correspondence with me, he said he wasn't trying to provide answers in his stories. He was trying to to um, ask questions and to get the reader to engage in the process of asking questions. And his close friend, Theodore Sturgeon, had a little motto that was, ask the next question. And he had a symbol, which was a question mark with an arrow pointing, you know, to ask the next question kind of a thing. So that's very different. He said he, he really emphasized that. He was not in the business of providing answers. He was in the business of asking questions. And I, and I like that. I think that really as, as a community, as the pagan community, we're not really big on anybody's answers, really. Uh, we don't provide our own. We're not into beliefs. We don't. Uh, people say, well, what do you believe? And we generally say, well, I don't know about beliefs so much. There's things that I have opinions about, and there's some things I... I know stuff, and a lot of stuff I have absolutely no idea, but have enjoy conversations and speculation. But we're just not a religion of beliefs. And I think that's also an important one. In fact, one of our people, Fred Lamond, who was the senior living gardenerian, he was the last person alive who had been initiated in Gerald Gardner's actual coven in 1957. He died a few years ago. He's a very good friend of mine and a member of the Church of All Worlds. He wrote a book called Religion Without Beliefs as a, as a kind of a takeoff on Crowley's Religion Without Fears. So there's a lot of backstories involved. There's a lot of interesting characters and ideas and conversations because we all knew each other, you know. I mean, right. all the people that, that Margot writes about in her book, we all knew each other. We were all good friends. You know, some of us were lovers. We hung out together and we had these conversations around the campfire or, you know, in hotel rooms at conventions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, it was not that isolation that you get with these cults. The cults are all isolated from each other. They're, they don't talk to each other. They don't trust each other. Their leaders, you know, mm-hmm. don't let their people mix with each other or read each mm-hmm. other's literature or attend each other's workshops and stuff. But we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we all go. If somebody has a big ritual, everybody goes. Somebody has a big festival, everybody goes. Somebody throws a party. Everybody shows up, and um, we don't we don't tolerate each other. We really enjoy each other. We enjoy the diversity of our company, our mixed communications and companies. I would even I would like to see personally a lot more diversity in our community, our, yeah. our racial 
diversity is somewhat limited, but there's a reason for that, of course, and that is that the earliest uh, public flowerings of the pagan movement were all about people reclaiming their heritages, their heritages that had been stripped away from them by oppression of Christianity primarily. Mm-hmm. And so these, the initial drive was to go back and reclaim the ancestral traditions. So um, as, the, as that spread, different groups started focusing on their own things. So you got the Greek traditional people tended to be mostly Greek people. Mm-hmm. And of course, you particularly got that with black people who tended to want to reclaim the um, African traditions mm-hmm. Caribbean traditions and stuff, but now we're seeing much more mixing up of that, which is just wonderful as people are getting more and more interacting, interacting with each other. But it's taking a while. It's you know no pressure there, but um, you know I enjoy seeing that diversity. It's um, I think it's an important hallmark of who we are and who we aspire to be, and who we will continue to aspire to be. Because as you know, we just touched down on Mars. Yes. And we have like the beginnings of what we see in the expanse. We're starting yep. to see there, there could very well be the next few hundred years, the first generation of Martians. And well, I don't think it's going to take that long. I you really don't think don't. so? No, no. I, I envision as these cycles go, these 60 year cycles, the next one, I mean, we're just starting this one, the current one, the awakening. The next cycle will be in the, in the 2080s. And I'm calling that the Gaia Spora, the time mm. that we will be sending, you know, our uh, people and colonies out there into the universe. And I also, um, they've never sent a vehicle or a mission to Mars ever that is designed to look for life. They've right. sent lots of things there to look for organic molecules or the possibility of ancient uh, conditions that would be conducive to life or things like that. Now, the uh, current um, perseverance is going to look for possible fossil evidence of ancient life from billions of years ago. But they've never like put a petri dish out and see if anything grows on it. There's never been anything that would detect the presence of living organisms. And they've never sent anything to the places where something like that would possibly survive. It's like all of the probes we've sent the landing sites have been chosen to be as blank and featureless as possible, um, just so that the landing craft wouldn't like hit a boulder or fall off a cliff or something like that. So they've never sent anything down to the depths of the Valles Marineris, where the air pressure is high enough to retain liquid water. They've never sent anything into the lava tubes, which are deep and enormous and vast through the vast uh, volcanoes in the Northern Hemisphere, Olympus Mons particularly. And these are the places where the most likely survival of life would be. But we've never sent anything there, and we probably won't until we have people there. Right. It's just too tricksy to do. But sure, if, if um, Perseverance finds you know, fossils of some ancient something or other in that ancient um, uh, river delta, which is really cool, that is the most exotic place that we've sent anything to, as an ancient river delta. That is a promising location. And I'm, I'm delighted to see it go there. I can't wait to see what they dredge up. But um, but we will find it. We will. Because I am totally convinced that life is everywhere in the universe. Mm-hmm. I believe that the life on Earth came here, born by comets, mm-hmm. which is where all the water came from. I mean, we have tardigrades. Tardigrades have been here for half a billion years. They've been here since the Cambrian explosion in 
suddenly an explosion of life proliferated all over the planet with no precursor. It had been nothing but single-cell life for two and a half billion years, and then suddenly, poof, this exploded. And among what was in that were tardigrades, these little tiny little critters the size of a of a pencil point that are designed to live in space. They, they can live in vacuum and, and hard radiation and, and you know, absolute zero temperatures. They're designed to live inside comets and frozen water and places like that. So if they're here... They didn't evolve those properties on, on Earth, and they've been here for forever, from the, since the beginning. And they're probably everywhere. I wouldn't be at all surprised if we find tardigrades on Mars. But we've never sent anything there to look for them. Well, it'll be very exciting to see yeah. if we do find tardigrades on Mars. I'm all morning, and I always said that we wanted to live long enough to uh, see the first encounter with, with non-terrestrial life of any mm. sort, just so we can compare the DNA. We had the suspicion that we will find that, that the DNA is, is not just our unique band here, but universal. But she didn't survive long enough, so now I have to live long enough for both of us. Right. Right. Well, I think we're finally starting to see the beginning stages of that being realized, because I my microbiology background wants to see what an extraterrestrial, even just a microbe, looks like outside of Earth. Like I, That is just something that will... I can die happy after that. It's a great background to follow the, the uh, uh, Perseverance program, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. That's actually one of the things that guided me into science. Is just I have always had a fascination with uh, extraplanetary life and the possibility of being an astrobiologist. See, the thing that always fascinates me the most about any science fiction films and stuff is when they show alien life forms. and. Few of them did. This, you know, Star Trek rarely showed any alien life forms, mm-hmm. and, and mostly what they showed were just people in rubber suits. But um, things like Avatar that show an entire alien ecosystem. Oh know? yes, yes, oh, yeah. That. Me too. I agree. He arrived. That was by far one of the most incredible ideas about what alien life could be for me. Like somehow that just seems like, yeah, they wouldn't have a linear language. Yeah, they wouldn't look like anything on Earth. That was a really interesting and and inspiring look at how we can kind of imagine what extraterrestrial life really could look like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to just ask you as we are wrapping up, you mentioned earlier in the interview about the book that you have coming out, but do you want to tell us about anything else you have going on or projects? Well, I have two. I have actually two books that I've just wrapped up this weekend. It's really mm-hmm. kind of neat. One of them I've been working on for ten years, called "The Song of Gaia," and it's a it's a poem at its core that was created uh, by my Morning Glory, my first and last apprentice um, before she died, uh, Kiri Johnson, and. A number of about ten years ago, she came to me because uh, her her son who was in Waldorf school, and they were telling about the origin myths, creation myths of different religions. And he said, "Mom, what's what's the origin myth of our creation myth of our uh, pagan tradition?" And well, of course, there's lots of stories, but she particularly wanted to tell the Gaia story, mm-hmm. and so. She came and interviewed me for some time, and we did lots and lots of interviews over my initial Theogenesis vision that Melville talks about in Drawing Down the Moon. And out of that came this incredible poem, amazing poem, 26 four-line stanzas. So we said, well, this is going to be a children's um, 
but it required art, a lot of it. And it took a long time to get all the art together for that. So we had to find our initial artist did two spectacular uh, graphics for it, four page yellows, and then disappeared. And then we spent years trying to find another artist who could pick up in a comparable style that would fit in and go forward. And finally, I found one a couple of years ago um, in India, an amazing children's book artist named Fatima Sakara. And so we worked together for about a year or so, uh, getting all the rest of the yellows done. And then there's a whole backstory that goes with it and uh, that explains the science and mythology because it blends science and mythology in a really mm. fascinating way. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you can go and see the basis of it at the website, which is songofgaia.com. The Song of Gaia, a paean to the soul of nature. So you can look it up there and see the at least the... Um, the poetry and the graphics and a kind of a prospectus, which I really recommend. But it's all complete now. I've got it all formatted, and um, now I'm just trying to figure out how to publish it. I'm sending off proposals to children's book publishers and considering the possibility, perhaps the probability, of self-publishing through Amazon mm -hmm. or something, but I have no experience with that. Mm -hmm. All of my publishing has been through regular book publishers, so it's a whole new field to consider. Anyway, I'm really excited about that. And the other book I mentioned is the um, about Undiscovered Country Road, the Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife. It explores from death on, where, where did we go? The last book that I did, was I co-wrote with the woman who had been the death doula for Morning Glory's Passage, uh, Judith Benley, and that was in 2014. And out of that came this commission to do a book on dying. And we did, and it's called the Death Rights and Rights. And so, so this just came out. Oh, wow. Death Rights and Rights. It's yes. brand new. And uh, as you can see, I'm the co-author on it. But when it was finally together, we got all the stuff that the publisher wisely decided. It was really two books. And one of them was about the whole process of dying and dealing with the dying and, and home funerals and the history of the funeral business and all that kind of stuff. Disposition of the remains and all of that. So all the material that was relevant to that is retained in this book, and the stuff that I had written that was all about what comes next, the passage of the uh, of the dying person, was kind of just excluded, which was absolutely perfect, because that gave me just what I needed to be the foundation for another whole book. So I decided, okay, well, this, is a, this will be kind of a sequel. The first book is dealing with the dying up to death, and the second will be the passage of the dying person from then on. So I'm exploring the afterworlds of different cultures and um, near-death experiences stuff, as well as as concepts and theories and visions from the furthest edges of quantum physics on, on the eternality and the passage of the soul and all kinds of neat stuff. I'm pretty pleased. And I've got a bunch of illustrations I did for it, of maps of the afterlives of different places, cultures. So I'm, I'm all jazzed about that. So these are both of these books are now completed just right now. Great. Well, awesome. I'll be sure to let our readers know when those are available for purchase from Good. either your local bookstore or Amazon, I'm sure. And um, yeah, so any closing thoughts or words you would like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, I always think of um, in, in personal correspondence, Heinlein always signed off with Ad Astra Per Argua. You know, through struggle for the stars. And I think that that's probably a very apt way to sign off with something like this. So, add Astra Parajua, and may you live long and prosper. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Oz, for coming on the show. This has been a real honor to get to talk to you about all these very interesting and uh, historical in our in our community historical anecdotes that I'm equitably privileged and lucky to be able to share with our listeners and record for posterity. So yeah, thank pleasure. you again. And I'm really glad to see you thinking of this and continuing and carrying it forward. Good on you. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you. Have a great rest of your, your afternoon. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you, Oz, for that very wonderful interview and a window into the past and future of neo-paganism. And thank you to the listeners out there. Please see the show notes to find more information about Oz's books coming out, as well as some of his other projects. For my next episode, I am going to be hosting a roundtable discussion between two crones about the legacy of the women's spirituality movement and witchcraft, hopefully in time for International Women's Day next month. Again, if you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to let me know you're listening, you can reach me at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. Until next time, live long and prosper, and blessed be.